Look back at me on that last day in May, finally 16, and the moment like a hand holding me out to the world. Rain giving way to a spectacular sun, its rays speckling through the stained glass, dancing off the hardwood floors, the orchestra's music lifting through the open windows and out over the block as though it had always belonged to the Brooklyn air. Look at me. Hair flat-ironed and curling over my shoulders, red lipstick, charcoaled eyes, the dress, Iris's dress, unworn in her closet until that moment. Already, when it was time for her ceremony, I was on my way. Already, at nearly 16, her belly told a story a celebration never could. My grandfather's oversized dress shirts backdropping the baby fat still pouting her cheeks, the fine lanugo hair still clinging to the nape of her neck. Still, that afternoon, the years that separated us could have been fifty. Iris standing at the bottom of the stairs watching me, me looking away from her. Where was I looking? At my father? My grandparents? At anything. At anyone but her. Your shelf for mine Talking sophisticated topics all the time Your shelf for mine A kickback, relax, crack a book, unwind at your shelf for mine Your shelf for mine Hello! And welcome to your shelf. Or mine. Or mine. I'm Becky Standall, Youth Services Librarian at the Longview Public Library. And I'm Jacob Collins, Library Technician at the Longview Public Library. I'm Austin, Circulation Specialist at the Longview Public Library. And what? What? <laughs> <laughs> Am I supposed to say that yet? Yeah, it'll be, that'll be that when we are posted, so. Okay. Congratulations. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Uh, today, we're here... Recording on April 27th, 2023, it's National Poetry Month, and we're talking about Jacqueline Whitson. Yay. Austin wanted to talk about National Poetry Month a little bit before we started. Oh, just happy National Poetry Month. We we tried to celebrate at the library a little bit this month. We had an open mic event, and a bunch of community members came out and read. We also were fortunate to have outgoing Washington State Poet Laureate, Rena Priest, come. She gave a poetry workshop and a reading, including a reading from an anthology that uh, she's been putting together from poets all across the state about salmon. I think it's called Poems to Sing the Salmon Home. It was a really, it was a really good event. So poetry's great. Yay. And I had picked Jacqueline Woodson for this month. Um, she's a poet, maybe like a little bit of a less traditional than you would think of when you just think of a poet in your mind. She's written a lot of stuff, and she also just does like a really wide range of writing. So um, she writes picture books. She writes books for middle grade readers, like elementary age kids. She's done a verse memoir. She's written for adult audiences. She's done a bunch of stuff. Her best known work is probably Brown Girl Dreaming, which is her verse memoir, it won the National Book Award in 2014. It also won a Newbery Awards honor and a Coretta Scott King Award. She's also won, like I'm looking at her little bio, she's actually finalized for the National Book Award four times. She's got a Newbery honor four times. She's a two-time NAACP Image Award winner and a two-time Coretta Scott King Award winner. And I'm reading this from a bio of a book that came out in 2019. So maybe- She's probably got a bunch more by more now. Stuff. 
She was also the 2018-2019 National Ambassador for Young People's Literature, and she's won the Children's Literature Legacy Award from American Library Association. She won that in 2018. And in 2015, she was the Young People's Poet Laureate, which is a designation that the Poetry Foundation does. So she's like kind of a big deal. Do I want to talk about what we're each coming to this episode, how much background we have on Mm -hmm. Jacqueline Woodson? Sure. I'll start. So I've read a number of her picture books, and I had read Brown Girl Dreaming the year that it came out because it was real big and splashy, and I really liked it. And then I was familiar with a lot of her other works, but hadn't read any of them. Jacob? Yeah, I think I was first exposed to her work by shelving materials in the library, and I started seeing especially her picture books that stood out to me. In particular, there was one about visiting uh, a parent who was in jail, which I thought was unique. I had never seen a picture book feature that topic before, so it stuck out in my mind. And then I heard about Brown Girl Dreaming from Becky of her talking about it in the past, and that was one of the books that I read in preparation for the podcast. I am coming to it with the least experience. I have heard Becky talk about Jacqueline Woodson for quite a while, and she put Brown Girl Dreaming into my hands, and I have not finished it. I'm a, I'm a good little bit through, really enjoying it. It's a, it's a fast read. It moves really fast, and it's really like sort of smooth and clear and um, very moving, so I'm enjoying it quite a bit. Let's go ahead and start with Brown Girl Dreaming, because at least now it's the book we've read or read part of I reread like of the first kind of few parts to try to jog my memory about the book but I'm just going to have Jacob kind of sum the book for us okay uh so it begins beginning of her life where she's talking about herself as a newborn and like the experiences of her parents uh, as she's born in the hospital and like the origin of her name And it continues on as her life, briefly living with both parents and then living with her grandparents and her mother and then back to living with her mom and dad, then back to her grandparents again, and then eventually moving to New York and to Brooklyn in particular and her childhood there as she navigates school and adolescence. And I remember her talking about growing up is she Jehovah's Witness? Yeah, she's a Jehovah's Witness, yeah. And I thought that was interesting because I don't know that I've kind of read any anything like that before. And it's written, it's written in verse, in a kind of free verse, mm-hmm. very loose free verse. So, yeah, what did you guys think about the organization? It's I thought it was really interesting because I do think I've read a lot of verse novels and a lot of times it's a novel, so you're kind of moving through it. And the sections aren't necessarily like distinct poems or anything like that. But I feel like in Brown Girl Dreaming, it's like a cohesive memoir about her life. But I think for me, like every particular section could stand alone and work on its own as just like its own poem. Did you guys feel that way? I did, yeah. And every time that I read through another chapter, it was clear where like the next section was going in her life. Even when considerable time had passed, it was clear, like the story still made sense, even though she wasn't taking necessarily the time to explain, oh, three months later, or explain how long the time jump was. And whether that was like new events that were happening in her school or another life event, like her baby brother being born. Like you said, each one kind of could stand alone. I think so too. I think the the form lends itself really well to the 
the nature of memory, you know, this way that she uses this real accessible free verse to kind of just, I feel like that's the way a lot of memories are, this sort of sequence of images and associations and 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 she can be a little bit elliptical and, you know, not explain everything because, I don't know, it feels true to how people sort of think about themselves and their past and sort of move through the world. So I thought that worked really well. Yeah, and there was a good example of that in the book where um, she's talking about her aunt who died. Really, her only memory of her is like being on the stairs with her and then there being a fall and then like that was it. There was a funeral after that and then that's really all of the memories that she ever had of that person in her life. Yeah, yeah. And it was such a small section of the book, but it was so powerful. Your turn, Becky. Well, I mean, it's been, it's been like I said, it's been a while uh, since I read the, the full book. I liked the kind of Dickensian way that it starts. It's like, chapter one, I'm born. And I read Red at the Bone, which is a novel that she had come out a couple of years ago. And I see a kind of like similar ways that she does that. Red at the Bone is about family and it kind of like moves through to their different perspectives and their like the timelines of their lives. And it like often is like this is, you know, this is the chapter the child is born and this is the like these rememberings of like really pivotal moments in their lives. She uses detail really well. Like I think about the part of the book that I've read, there's a lot of talk about the civil rights movement and the marches and stuff. And she hone in on these like little details. Like there's this one passage that's about this woman and I can't remember her name. She works as a domestic in a white person's house and she can't march because she'll be fired. Like her, her, um, boss has explicitly told her that and so she she cooks for the marchers and lets them meet in her house and she kind of does this litany of just all the details of the food makes it really vivid or like she's talking about her grandfather or daddy they call him even though you know he's not their father working i think he said like typesetting at a newspaper or running the presses yeah i think he was like at a printing press type of or, yeah, and the way the the white men he works with treat him, even though he's like, I don't know if he's above them in position. He's certainly like the most experienced person there. They call him by his first name. And she talks about the detail of how white and black, they all get covered in the ink, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's just, she's just got a good way with an economy of detail. She doesn't take a lot of words to kind of sketch these situations, but they really, they're really vivid. And the right detail, you know, just the right detail to to hit you. I think she does kind of a similar thing in this picture book that Jacob brought up, which is, I believe, her most recent. And it's about growing up in New York, in Brooklyn, in the 70s, which would have been her time. And them, like all of the kids coming home after the last day of school, And then just like the joy of the whole summer where their world was very small. It was like this block, but it's like theirs. It totally belongs to them. These details of like the mothers all like opening the windows and calling out in the street for their kids to come home and somebody like sneaking like a wrench out so they can open the fire hydrant on days when it's really hot. There's this part where she talks about the boys teasing each other like boys don't cry and then a big boy coming and say, I'll tell you about a time I cried and like convincing everybody that they were wrong. I think that's really 
autobiographical kind of hits the same times that she's writing about in Brown Girl Dreaming. The World Belonged to Us really hit that core memories of childhood where like everything is so vivid and your experiences matter so much to you in that moment in your life where like you're so in the moment and you're not thinking about anything else and just like the childhood wonder and like the magic of childhood friendships. I think mm-hmm. it's really captured well in that book. Mm-hmm. And that like joy of summer break. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Core memories, I think is that's exactly like how she's writing her her poems. I think she does that when she's doing fiction too. I want to talk more about the book that I, I don't know, 10 pages from the Almost end. there. I know. It's called Red at the Bone, and it came out in 2019. And it's about a family, like I said, this girl, her name is Melody. And at the beginning of the book, she's having like a, I don't know, like a cotillion type of thing that her grandparents are having her do, like this coming out party where she's like 16 or whatever and they are kind of like a wealthy black family in new york her grandparents are and her parents are there they are not married they had her i think her mother was 15 and her father was maybe 16 when they had her and her mother's parents are the ones who are like she lives with um, and throwing this party for her. And it's kind of like, we didn't get to throw the party for your mother. She's actually wearing the dress her mother was supposed to wear, but didn't get to because she was pregnant. And then from there, it kind of like bounces into the the minds and memories of her grandparents and her parents and her. And it's it's really interesting. It goes back. Her mother, that family was Catholic, but they didn't want her to have a child, but she fought them about it and carried her to term but then after that really never felt any kind of like maternal feelings about her and ended up when she was two she finished high school and went away for college and like left you know the daughter for four years in the care of her father and the grandparents and I feel like their relationship never like felt kind of like a mother-daughter relationship for her, for the daughter or for the mother, I guess, frankly. And then while the mother was in college, she fell in love with this woman and, you know, never ended up having that like relationship with Melody's father that he had wanted to have. He was raised by a single mother who was a prostitute who dies. It's kind of unclear. It's either when... Iris is the mother's name is pregnant or when Melody is just a, like a really small baby from cancer and she had decided because so Iris had gone to like a Catholic school and they basically told her she couldn't go to school there anymore but his mother his his name is like Aubrey I think the father says I don't want you getting like a GED or doing this I, she decided to take this time to tutor her basically three times a week to get her through high school so she could continue to have her future because she's like I don't want my granddaughter to have a mother who never finished high school and in the sections with Iris like when she's in college she talks about kind of like this debt that she owes to to this woman who doesn't live long enough to see her granddaughter grow up or you know how her son's life plays out But then after she dies, he moves in with her parents. So he lives with her parents and the daughter while Iris is in college. And they build this kind of interesting family unit. And then it goes into like the grandparents perspective. And and the grandfather talks about 
you know, of his love for his granddaughter. And, you know, he hopes that she never has to, like, fight with her mother about whether to keep her own baby or not. And then the her father is talking about his relationship with his mother and the father he never knew. And in all these, like, kind of sections where, like, Jacob described the world belonged to us of, like, core memories of these five people. And it's just so beautiful. And it moves between, like, these different perspectives and these different time periods in a way that, like, I think could be confusing if it was done by, like, a writer who just wasn't as good as she is. But it's never, it's just so fluid Mm -hmm. and it's so, like, natural. I really, really like it. And it's easy, too. It's, like, it's just a pleasure to read. So how many different mediums did you say Jacqueline Woodson works in? We talked about novels. Memoir. Memoir. Picture books. Mm Mm-hmm. What else does she do? As if that isn't enough. Yeah, I mean, that's mostly it. So this, is was, the main... she, this was published for adults, and she publishes stuff for, I would say, middle grade. Different to age young, groups. Young teen. More than different mediums. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. And even this is like, it's not, it doesn't look verse in the same way that like Brown Girl Dreaming, when you flip through it, looks like it's in yeah. verse. But it's kind of written in a real poetic. You said it was a lyri- real lyrical. Yeah, kind really of... lyrical style. Hmm. Have you guys read other of her picture books? I have that one that Jacob talked about. It's called Visiting Day. Mm. And I think still Visiting Day is kind of an older book. But I think still one of the very few books for children that talks about that experience of having a parent in jail. I think Matt De La Pena and Christian Robinson published Milo Imagines the World last year or the year before. And I feel like maybe that's the next, you know, like a similar perspective. Let me pull up a list. Oh, she did, yeah, The Day You Began. And that's another novel in verse? It's a picture book. Picture book, okay. Mm-hmm. That's about, like, going to school. Mm. Like, kindergarten. You said she was ambassador for young people's literature. Is that the title? Ambassador for young people's literature? And who, what body is that? The National Ambassador for Young People's Literature. Yeah. Is that a government thing? Or is that a it, kind of like the poet laureate? I think it's let me double check i know i heard you talk about jason reynolds had that position mm-hmm. as well he's jason reynolds is still i believe in that position they're letting him have it for life right <laughs> um yeah it's part of li- library of congress does that library one. of congress mm-hmm. okay no i think he got extra time because his was it because of covid because of covid oh. and he didn't get to like visit the stuff oh no actually meg medina is doing it now so his his term ended in in 2022 and Meg Medina is this year's the 23-24 National Ambassador for Young People's Literature. She's great, too. Those kind of gigs are really interesting, I mm-hmm. think. You get to do a lot of different stuff. Yeah, we talked to Rena Priest yeah. about, I was like, what, you know. She got a how little. How do you become the Poet Laureate? And Yeah, hers was a little bit disrupted by COVID. She did mm-hmm. a lot of virtual stuff. But like ordinarily, it's very, very busy. And for like two years, they go to every manner of event they go visit people in the jails they go to schools they go to libraries they go to different sort of cultural communities uh things they go to openings of public art they go you know uh, sometimes they write occasional poems for certain certain events often run programs it sounds like a lot of work but mm-hmm. it sounds like a pretty cool pretty cool thing and so i'm kind of imagine the national bus for young people's literature being kind of a similar thing mm-hmm. it's a lot and i think they they get to choose you know what their focus is. Yeah. I know that Jason Reynolds was really interested in visiting like 
incarcerated youth? That's usually how, that's kind of how the, the National Poet Laureate um, mm-hmm. is structured, is they kind of are expected to pioneer a program or choose a, a thing. Mm-hmm. So like when Ted Kuser was the Poet Laureate, he did like a newspaper column because there used to be this thing earlier in the 20th century where poetry was in the newspapers all the time. So he offered a free column to any newspaper that wanted to run poems. Mm -hmm. And I know people have done in the classroom stuff and Joy Harjo just finished not that long ago. That was the thing that happened to Rena Priest is she got COVID earlier in National Poetry Month and she was supposed to like meet Joy Harjo and do all this stuff. And instead she was she was at home. So it looks like Jacqueline Winston's done like 13 picture books. Wow. She's done about 20, 20 books for young readers that range between like middle grade and, and young adult. And she's done Red at the Bone and another Brooklyn are just two adult books that she's published. And was another Brooklyn after Red at the Bone? Is that a more recent one? I think Red at the Bone is the, more the most recent, recent one. Hmm. Um, she was a National Book Award finalist for another Brooklyn, too. Yeah, that was 2017. So not still like fairly, fairly recent in her career. So one question I had was in Brown Girl Dreaming, she talks about her experiences growing up and developing an interest in writing mm-hmm. and, and some of the hijinks she kind of gets up to because she sort of starts stretching the truth a little bit and like, questioning, well, if this story that I want to tell is super important to me, is it any less real? Mm, um, interesting. So I wanted to ask, as I know the two of you have done some writing, what was? did you have any experiences growing up uh, as a young writer that were notable? <laughs> Becky, do you have an answer to that? I'm trying to think. Um, when I was in this second grade, I think, I got to go to this young writer's event thing and I like I remember it and I got a copy of the book but they'd had like a a writer come her book was about the Iditarod and and all of these students were selected from all these different schools all to come to this I don't know event and she uh, talked to us about writing and I think we all had like a little book that each of us had read that we got to like share and there might have been other things that happened but I and we all got a copy of that book and got to meet her and she signed it and I think I probably still have that book like at my parents house somewhere and it has like personalized like kind of words of encouragement in it and I remember that was probably like the first author I ever met I don't remember her name or anything but I had that book for a long time and I read it like a a lot and I always kind of having that Mm. to like look back and remember it that was something that was really cool for me that's nice yeah I had some little things happen and I look back on the st- the the actual like work and I'm like oh god. <laughs> um I think my like little picture book I wrote about a panda who broke her leg was probably, you know, Caldecott worthy. Yeah, That's your, I your don't, magnum opus. Yeah. I don't doubt it. There was a thing, I don't even remember what grade it was where we were supposed to create a book and I did like this pirate book. I think it was pretty ripped off of Pirates of the Caribbean, which was out at the time. I'm pretty embarrassed about that. And then they had like a poetry contest. The Daily News had a poetry contest. And we had a teacher that would make us enter it. And I wrote this poem. And I don't know why. It was so over the top, sad, ridiculously sad poem. And it won. And I got to go to like a little ceremony. um, And you're supposed to read the poem. It wasn't like autobiographical because it's like about 
somebody's dad dying. My dad was fine. I don't know why my parents <laughs> thought of this. Like, what's wrong with this brooding child? Anyway. How old were you? I don't know. Pretty young. I was, you know, like a young teenager, maybe, or maybe a little younger than that. Like 12? Maybe. I don't know. I don't remember. But uh, it's in, it got printed in the paper. Luckily, I can say that and nobody will be able to find it because I don't think it's easy to search in the newspaper records. Luckily. Challenge accepted. Uh, yeah. And so, and I think we entered in that a, a few years running. Most of my writing that I did, I did some poetry and stuff in school. And that was sort of my first love in literature was poetry. And I think, I don't really write poetry anymore, but I think coming up with poetry education really informs the way you write prose. I think you can mm -hmm. see that probably in the, you're talking about a very lyrical prose. You can just help poets who do nonfiction or fiction. And one of the things I think when I was younger, I was doing like nonfiction and journalism stuff. I was very obsessive about this idea that when you were writing personal writing and memoir, that you needed to be like ruthlessly honest. Right. And when you came, when you came to other people too, give no quarter to, you know, it's just like, I must write, you know, and, and it uh, doesn't matter what anybody else, you know. And I think that's a harder attitude to sustain as you get older and maybe a little bit more compassionate toward, you know, people in your life or your parents or whatever. Anyway, that's a digressive answer. Jacob, what was that verse memoir that we read? Do you remember? It was like a young adult one. And it was by... Was it Ordinary Hazards? Ordinary Hazards. Who wrote that? Nikki... Nikki Grimes. Nikki Grimes. She talks in that book, and I think I probably talked about it on the podcast before, but she talks about how helpful it was for her to approach her memoir as like a verse memoir because she spent like a lot of her childhood in like foster care mm. and like a lot on suffering like abuse and stuff. And she was separated from her sister for a long time and them comparing kind of memories of what happened. They don't like match necessarily. Mm -hmm. And she's forgotten a lot or or like the way trauma has affected the way she's remembered stuff. But to, to think about it, to approach it as like verse that helped her kind of deal with those like wonderings of this, like, did this really happen? Is it yeah. happen? Like I remember, do I have to tell the truth always when I'm talking about my own memories or my past? Yeah. The medium accommodates mm -hmm. a less like linear or, you know, complete. And I like the way that narrative. Jacqueline Woodson is able to like both be really specific about her life and her experiences, but also like place herself in like at the center at of the it. center of like the history of like yeah i don't know the united states or mm. the world or new york or wherever she's like i was born when was she born 60 was it 63 yeah yeah and she's like this you know like this is what was going on in the world mm -hmm. and here i am entering it <laughs> um, number one i am born yeah like this now I'm, I'm here to change change the timeline or whatever yeah that's true that's true and i just think like poetry is so accessible to kids and mm. I can't think of another memoir that kids read like it's Brown Girl Dreaming. And that's that's mm. that's, that's it. That's it. That's interesting because it's so accessible to them. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, well done. And but a lot of like. You know, picture books. It's funny, Raina Priest was talking at her thing on Monday <laughs> about yeah. Sasquatch books, which published this little book about beaches that she wrote. Like a guide to beaches, uh -huh. yeah. Northwest Know How Beaches. Yeah. Had, were interested in her writing a picture book. And she was like, I can't do that. I don't know anything about picture books. And they're like, it's basically just a poem. 
so she wrote a poem and then they didn't want it yeah <laughs> also she felt like i feel like she felt like when they asked her like she couldn't be she wasn't the right temperament or you know so inspirational or sort of upbeat mm -hmm. and then she was like and they wanted it to be like a lullaby mm -hmm. and uh and then so she started like researching children's literature and lullabies and she's like oh these are pretty dark she's like i can do this <laughs> so then she wrote one and they didn't want it yeah but a lot of picture books are are verse are basically like yeah they're basically poems not all of them there's a lot that are like you know yeah maybe children have an easier relationship with poetry than adults because i feel like Mm-hmm. Not that I don't I don't subscribe to the thing. There's people in the poetry world who are like very evangelical. Like it's a problem we need to solve in American society that more people aren't into poetry. And then mm -hmm. there's poets who are like, whatever. But you do hear adults like talking about poetry. People have this idea that they're like riddles. Mm -hmm. Like that that like it's not a poem, it can't be accessible. Oh, or just yeah. about, you know, there's so much to poetry about the thing. music of it or the the savor of the words or whatever. But like people uh have this idea and i think it comes from kind of like crappy academic stuff and mm -hmm. the way poetry is taught in schools that a poem has to be kind of opaque and like a riddle that you have to solve and interpret yeah it's like a test like, it's like a, you don't yeah. get it and you're dumb and then people don't <laughs> yeah and so people are like oh, i'm not interested in that and That's... it leaves out so much of what poetry is particularly american poetry which mm -hmm. is so expansive you know this is the land of walt whitman and free verse you know and yeah well i think that's why you see so many kids whose like favorite book is like this book of shell silverstein poems and then they go to middle school and they're like not allowed to like the funny stuff anymore or or that's not like right you know, it's not real right literature. that's not real poetry no i don't know i don't know what the thing they teach in would be <laughs> but yeah i don't know i felt like coming up they didn't teach like contemporary poetry at all I feel like we read like the rhyme of the ancient mariner, Coleridge and, you know, stuff like that. And I'm like, where's the, I mean, not even like contemporary, contemporary, where's like Gwendolyn Brooks or like mm -hmm. Richard Hugo or, we you know. We read Gwendolyn Brooks when I was in, I remember, I remember, I think she had us, I don't know, I had this really cool English teacher when I was a freshman in high school. And she like she would do these things like when we read Romeo and Juliet and she's trying to get us to understand like iambic pentameter. She made us like march around the room like, <laughs> reciting the the like prologue to families both alike in dignity and fair Verona where we lay our scene. Like I can still do it. And I think something similar to like we real cool. We skip school. I'm looking for that poem right now. Mm -hmm. And then also the we idea also of have really cool picture what poems can it be about. In the library, oh, too. yeah. Mm -hmm. What poems can be about. Right. you know and sort of high culture low culture stuff mm -hmm. and a lot of people connect to young people to like you know even though he's been gone for so long to tupac mm -hmm. and his we have his book of poems in the teen section even all these years later people are still wanting to read it yeah can i read that real quick yeah it's called we real cool the pool players seven at the golden shovel we real cool we left school we lurk late we strike straight we sing sin, we thin gin, we jazz June, we die soon. That's Gwendolyn Brooks. Yeah, she is cool. She's a cool lady. So Mark is on desk, so that's why I'm still here. Oh, <laughs> Mark's nice. Yeah. Shout out to Mark. <laughs> Shout, out to Mark. Shout out to Mark. Mark Counts. Covering the real MVP. Desk. That's right. Poet of the summer reading boards. <laughs> Do you guys have anything else about Jacqueline Woodson? Anything else about poetry you want to talk about? Do you guys feel, I think, 
for me, a lot of the times when I read poetry, I feel like inspired to not even necessarily like write poetry, but sometimes, but like to 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 be more creative mm-hmm. or do more creative things. I like a it's a little I don't know I guess what would Oprah say soul food? <laughs> Oprah probably would say soul food. Yeah, I feel that way. Or you know I think a lot of people who love poetry make it feel more creative. But a lot of people, I think, also doesn't is not necessarily call them to any kind of action except to like look around differently, yeah. mm-hmm. or to like you know there's a kind of presence and savoring of the world in poetry that makes you want to like look around differently at at your own life at the world. So, I think that when I read Brown Girl Dreaming in particular, it kind of made me nostalgic for like my own childhood. Like I started mm-hmm. thinking of how would I take these memories that I have and turn them into poems, and like if I wanted to create my own book of poetry about my life like what would it look like Mm -hmm. and so I started kind of forming those ideas in my head of what it would sound like what it would look like what are what are those key memories that would definitely have to go in the book yeah yeah it's almost like like a memory book or you know where you just have these kind of like snapshots or Mm -hmm. yeah images Mm -hmm. details Becky have you read anything else from Jacqueline Woodson I I haven't. I was just looking at her list and like she's written so many like middle, I'd say middle grade to young adult. I feel like it, a lot of her work falls like right at that. At the cusp. At that transition. Like, yeah. And I've like meant to read a lot. I think this was her first book which she did after Tupac and Dee Foster. I have that book checked out to my card right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I just didn't end up having time to read it. And I also checked out Feathers by her and I, Again, just didn't have time to read it. So when does, at what point in her life does Brown Girl Dreaming end? Oh, I think if I remember correctly, it ends right around middle school, like right around maybe sixth grade. Mm -hmm. And I know that one of the last chapters deals with her meeting a teacher who sees her for who she is. And like, it's like one of the ongoing themes throughout the story is that she's the younger sibling of older sister who is very academically gifted and she's often compared to her, mm-hmm. but she's less skilled at the time as a reader. Mm-hmm. And so she takes more time to be able to read and like digest materials. But as time goes on, they learn that, you know, she may take longer, but she can recite like this entire book passage by memory once she's really had time to sit down and reread it multiple times and everything. So she's intelligent. She was just a slower reader. Mm-hmm. But this teacher... Um, who I believe was a black woman, recognizes her as a writer. And she says, oh, you're a writer. And that sort of like unlocks something for yeah. her and like really makes her feel validated and mm-hmm. like recognizes herself as that label of like, oh, I am a writer. Yeah. I can do it. That's cool. I feel like so many, I think maybe almost especially writers who write for kids have like a teacher or somebody like in there. Or a librarian. Or a librarian, Exactly in their history who like really saw and recognized and encouraged and encouraged them. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if she'll ever like tackle writing about, you know, her teen years or Mm -hmm. other times in her life. She's in her sixties or she's right around 60. Isn't she? Uh, yes. She would be 60 this year. Okay. And she's married to a woman. Mm -hmm. She's a queer writer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I would be interested in reading about her experiences as a, queer black woman 
growing up and like in what that ex- in the 70s and 80s yeah. yeah there's i wonder reading red at the bone you know how autobiographical some parts of it are because the um and i don't know where jacqueline woodson went to college but iris the mother of the of the teenager in the book goes to oberlin and she has this this romance with this woman named jameson and she talks about she's like she she doesn't want to like identify as being gay or bisexual or queer she just loves this one person and mm. but then also like it it takes place in i feel like the late 80s and she also doesn't want to like tell anybody about it cuz she also she has she's had it's almost like two she's two separate lives cuz also she didn't tell Jameson or anybody else at school that she had like a child at home and you know Jameson kind of asked these questions of her that she's not really been interested in answering but I wonder if if she had some sort of college experience that, you know, <laughs> you could just read all kinds of things into people's novels that they write. But. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so there's a lot of times where I feel like writers, you know, have at least inspirations based on their own experiences mm-hmm. because it helps the writing be more authentic because it's drawing from a frame of reference or a memory or an experience that you had yourself. So. Yeah, or at least a place that you've been. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or maybe she's just that good and she can just pull I it out I mean, there's also that too, too. But yeah, I really, really like this book. I would really recommend it. There's this part, so the the two teen, it's funny, they're teenagers at a certain part of the book and then they're like adults at a different part. But they get together, I think they said it's, it's 1985 because they're talking about how they're both reading the book 1985 and thinking like how cool it was to be able to like compare what they're living in to, to what George Orwell like wrote about and how... Mm-hmm. You know, he missed all the good music and stuff. (laughs) And there's this part where Aubrey has Melody when she's like little out at a park. So they meet in Brooklyn. And then when Iris gets kicked out of the Catholic school, like her parents can't handle it. They move them all to like somewhere else. Bushwick? I don't remember. And so like they have a new neighborhood and he goes back to Brooklyn. And this is later in the 80s. And this would have the time where, like, crack cocaine is, like, devastating these neighborhoods. And talking about, like, how there was a moment where he had thought about how easy it would have been to, like, make some quick money and, oh. like, get in the game. And he just kind of didn't do it. And then his trajectory changed because of his daughter. And he comes back with her and they're at this park. And she tells him he ends up meeting this person that he had known who tells him about somebody else that they had known who was like shot in the park and and killed oh wow and his little daughter tells him that this place feels like it's in past tense and it's just like so vivid Mm -hmm. yeah it's really good it's like a way to just kind of almost quietly comment on like the way that the New York neighborhoods have changed and the effects that drugs or gentrification have had on these different neighborhoods it's really cool she must be just like real smart to talk to yeah i bet (laughs) (laughs) yeah there was one part that really stuck out to me in brown girl dreaming where her little brother gets sick from lead poisoning from he's basically like left alone a little bit or like whenever they mentioned that like whenever they turn their backs he's like pulling like paint off the wall and like eating it And I just remember it was so vivid, like, you know, there was that was a thing like, you know, kids used to do that. And 
lead poisoning was such a big deal and still is mm-hmm. a big deal. But yeah, her little brother ends up going to the hospital and she's talking about how she doesn't know if that's going to be the last time that she's ever going to see him. Mm-hmm. And the mom takes him to the hospital and then it mentions that she comes back alone and you're like, oh no, like, did he, did he die? And then it's like, no, he's just in the hospital for a while. And, but it was just so shocking for her to see the mom come back without him. Mm-hmm. Gosh, there's this point where she's like, the girl is in high school. She's a teenager, maybe talking about 9-11 and it's very like, this doesn't come out and say what they're talking about just kind of referential and then she worries it's like the end of the section all the kids around her saying like oh my father works there my mother works there and then it just repeats my father my father my father my father and then that chapter's over and it switches to a different perspective and i haven't gotten to a point in the book where it kind of like resolves resolves that and what happened to him i don't know if it will there's not very many pages left (laughs) (laughs) But it that maybe was, it's just implied. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, but it's good. Yeah, like Austin mentioned. I mean, she does. Her language is so concise and vivid. She can say so much with so little. Mm-hmm. It's incredible, and it's just so vivid. Like I, I remember. To be fair, I just finished it last night, mm-hmm. but I feel like it's so still fresh in my mind, and like I could picture every chapter that mm-hmm. I read. Highly recommend. Excellent. So this one is from a chapter called Lullaby in Brown Girl Dreaming. At night, every living thing competes for a chance to be heard. The crickets and frogs call out. Sometimes there's the soft hoo-hoo of an owl lost amid the pines. Even the dogs won't rest until they've howled at the moon. But the crickets always win. Long after the frogs stop croaking and the owl has found its way home. Long after the dogs have lain down, losing the battle against sleep. The crickets keep going as though they know their song is our lullaby. Beautiful. Thanks everybody for listening to Your Shelf. Or mine. Or mine. I'm Becky. I'm Jacob. I'm Austin. Bye-bye. Bye now. Bye. Support for Your Shelf or Mine comes from the friends of the Longview Public Library, the Longview Library Foundation, and listeners like you. Your Shelf or Mine jingle is written and performed by Megan McKeldery from A Song for You. Find Megan online at ReverbNation.com slash Megan McKeldery. That's M-E-A-G-H-A-N-M-C-E-L-D-E-R-R-Y. ReverbNation.com slash Megan McKeldery.